Good morning. We want to begin today with 1 John 1, 9. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I think we, we pretty much have this one down by now. Would you agree? Yeah? Let's try it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and good to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes we say faithful and just. So, but yeah, either way, both of them mean the same thing. It's good. We take the time to confess our sins. Uh, let me just ask this of you today. Take the time to do this. Don't waste this time. Uh, because today what we're going to be looking at is extremely hard teaching. Uh, some of you are going to walk out of here and not accept it. And I'll just go ahead and tell you that up front. And so I'm asking you to please make sure that there is no barrier between you and the Lord so that the Spirit is ministering it to your heart. Uh, it's not me just yelling for longer than I should. So... Sound good? And I will try to respect the time because we have so much going on today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise in Scripture that if we would simply apply it, that it is effectual. So, Father, I pray that if we've got anything that is burdening our hearts with sins we've committed, and not just those that are great, but those that are deemed small, and insignificant, that, Father, that would all be laid down before you. Thank you for the great power that you have in ridding us of those things so that we can have a closer walk with you. For the copies of God's Word that we have in abundance here in this building, pray, Father, that our eyes would be open today our hearts would be impacted, that the Spirit would minister these words to us, not be able to continue forward without really asking the question of what you're asking from us in this life. Pray, Father, that we could do all things to give you glory. So I pray, Father, we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but we would be softened because of what we hear today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 19. Our subject is a life that is worthy. Living a worthy life. What is your life worth? Many people gauge that in different ways. A lot of times we gauge it upon... Awards that we have won, accomplishments that we have achieved, things that we own. I'll never forget when I used to go preach at a retirement home. I spent 13 years preaching at a retirement home every Friday. And I would talk with this guy named Warner. He is just a great guy. He loved the Lord to pieces. But he started having a little bit of dementia set in. And when I would talk with him about things, he always wanted to let me know that he worked at Whirlpool. He loved the Lord. But really what identified him, what he related to, what he, what he understood as his identity was that he worked at Whirlpool, he was a believer in Jesus Christ, he loved his wife. Those are the three major things he wanted to let me know. But it was always about Whirlpool, 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 all the time. That's, that's, how, that's how he was known. That was the summation of in that type of state he understood about his life. What does that look like for you? Take a moment and picture it. 
If I had to put a value, not just dollar signs, but if I had to put a value on my life, what is it worth? Now you can get super spiritual and say, well, it's worth the death of the Son of God. That's how much God loves you, right? That's how you measure that. But as far as being brought into a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, what now? What happens next? Now we left off with some interesting teaching last week that Jesus had to say in private to his disciples. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'm going to have Mitch put it up on the screen. If you want to look quickly, it's Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. And if you remember, in this situation, it is a private conversation that he's having with his disciples. And here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. In the field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The subject is the kingdom of heaven. The audience in this conversation to whom Jesus is speaking to are those who already believe in him. Those who are granted to know more the mysteries of the kingdom are being revealed to him or to them. And here is the great mystery. When you come across the kingdom of heaven, do whatever it takes to make it your own. Give whatever it costs to possess it. It is worth far more than whatever we think we have of value in this life. Or let me say it this way and go ahead and answer the question. The most valuable thing about us is whether or not we will be inheritors of the coming kingdom of Christ. I'm going to tell you, this is difficult teaching. It is. Not everybody is going to get this. In fact, if you notice in your notes, if you turn to page 2, just to make it less difficult, I made a chart. How many people here don't really like books unless they've got pictures? That's me, right? I love it. So I wanted to make a chart. And if you notice, this chart recounts the idea of the parable of the soils. I wanted to have it in a short form because we've gone over it and over it and over it. But I want to give it to you because when Jesus starts speaking in parables, he gives this as a grid for how to understand people's responses to the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. This is what we should expect. So let's hit it real quick. The first one is when it's sown beside the road. It's hard. There's nowhere for it to get on there. And so the enemy comes in and actually takes the message away from people so that they cannot utilize it. They don't understand. The second group, the second soil, this hits in rocky places. And these people hear the message of the kingdom. They receive it with joy. But there's a problem. Persecution and affliction come. They're spoken against. They're slandered. It's going to cost them something. And rather than pay the cost for something, they get out of the way and they reject the message that they once embraced with joy. The third soil receives the message, 
But they find out that the matters of this life, earthly matters, and especially money, is a greater, what do we want to say, interest than God's plan for the kingdom. However, it's the last group that when they hear the message of the kingdom and they understand it, that there is a bearing of fruit, and that bearing of fruit could happen a hundredfold, sixtyfold, fortyfold. This is the grid that we are looking at. And so with this, we're actually going to look at a test case. Jesus is going to encounter somebody in Matthew 19 where we're actually going to see this play out in two different directions. This is very interesting. So everybody, Matthew chapter 19, let's start in verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Is the man asking a works question? He is. He's asking a works question. Everybody see this word, obtain? It's the word in the Greek word echo is what it is. We can relate to that pretty well because we understand we have the word echo in English, not the same thing. But the idea here is actually have. What should he do to have eternal life? What good work can he do? If you look at the parallel passages in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke, and these are mentioned in your notes, you'll actually find out that the question he asks is, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking a works question. We're not having any mistake about that. But notice what Jesus says after that. Verse 17, he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Who's the one that's good? It's it's God. It's actually God that he mentions here because Jesus is the one who's talking. So notice, by saying this, Jesus is relating himself to deity. He is saying that he is God. Watch this. There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now let's stop for a second. Does everybody see that the question of what this man must do to obtain eternal life and the idea of entering into life, Jesus is related to one and the same. Does everybody see this? This is important for you to get because different expressions are going to be given throughout this narrative here that are going to all connect to the same thing. The man asks, how do I obtain or inherit eternal life? Jesus equates this with the idea of enter into life. Now here's why this is important. If you have your notes and you have your handy dandy chart here, you'll flip over to the very next page. And in the middle paragraph, I have documented something for you that is extremely important that will hopefully eliminate a lot of confusion when we read the Word. We must be aware, notice the middle paragraph, we must be aware, everybody see that? That eternal life is not always understood in the Scriptures to be speaking only to the free gift that one receives when they believe in Jesus. Now we know John 3.16, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has eternal life we know that that is a justification verse how about the next part here notice i've got verse references for that eternal life can also speak to a quality of life to be experienced in the here and now by believers as they abide surrender or submit to the lord's word and that's the idea of i came john 10 10 i came to give them life there's your justification 
and give it how? Abundantly. The abundant life is a life to be lived now. And the way that that life is lived is by submission to God's Word. God says something about a situation that we can relate to in our lives. By receiving that Word, our decision now is, will I apply what God has told me so that I am now making decisions and living life differently that is more conformed to what the Lord has called me to do as written in Scripture? That is the idea of experiencing life in that moment. But the next one, I've given you some verses there. The next one. But eternal life can also be understood as the believer in Christ having a rich inheritance in the coming kingdom, which is considered to be the end of our salvation. And I've got you verses there. So notice, eternal life is a phrase that is used that can be speaking to our justification or our sanctification or our glorification, depending on where the context leads us to think. In other words, when you see the words or the phrase eternal life, don't immediately think go to heaven when you die. Let the context tell you what it means. So notice, Jesus tells him. He answers the question. He is God. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, is Jesus saying keep the law? Not necessarily at this time. Remember, he hasn't died on the cross yet. We don't have anything about his blood yet. We don't have anything about his resurrection yet. But notice what he tells him. Verse 18, then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, I'm glad you asked, right? Commandment number five, you shall not commit murder. Or I'm sorry, commandment number six. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. And then... As any good, wise Jewish rabbi would do, he's going to pull from Leviticus to trip all of us in the 21st century up, right? Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does everybody notice that the commandments that he gives to this man involve interpersonal relationships with other people? Is he telling them, if you keep the commandments, you will earn salvation and be able to go to heaven? Is that what he's telling him? No, but does Jesus answer with a works answer? He does. See, here's a common pitfall that happens in this situation, and I'm a little disappointed in a lot of the commentaries that I've read. We know this situation with the rich young ruler, don't we? We're pretty familiar with this. The idea is, is that he comes, and what the real problem is, is that he needs to be saved. And so he asks Jesus, what can I do to be saved? And in the back of his mind, but compassionately speaking, Jesus says, you big dummy, you can't earn salvation. And so what does Jesus do? He gives him all kinds of requirements to live up to in order to expose him and to show him what a dirty, rotten, evil, nasty sinner that he is and how he can't earn life on his own works. When that doesn't take because the man replies, well, I've, I've done all this. Obviously, he's a liar. Liar. In fact, I used to teach it this way. He's a liar. And so what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is really going to send him over the top. Jesus pulls out the blade and he's going for the jugular. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And many commentators say you at least need to have this attitude if you are to be saved. You need to be willing to give up all in order for you, Jesus to save you. 
So the man is very distraught and sorrowful, and he walks away because he had a pretty nice portfolio going on, and he's not willing to give it up. Therefore, he is eternally in the lake of fire. I challenge you that that is not what this means at all. And in doing so, paying attention to the context will lead us in a much better, healthier, and much more challenging direction than by a corruption of the gospel. So now watch with me what takes place here. The man replies, verse 20, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Now here's what's interesting. If he was a good Jew, who was holding fast to the law, desiring to worship Yahweh, those types of things, this would have been just his rule of life. This is how he treated people. He might not have had, in fact we know, he didn't have a chair at the table whenever Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. That it's not just about whether or not you actually slay another person, but if you hate them in your heart, you've committed murder against them. It's not about the action. It's about the heart. Actions can mean many different things, and we're often really good actors at covering them up, pretending to be a lot of things that we are not. But our hearts are not hidden from God. So could he have kept all these things in a very mechanical, superficial, outward sense? Yeah, probably. He probably could have. That probably could have been his attitude of life. But I think this man is a believer. Because notice, even he understands, I'm still lacking something. If that's what it is, I've got it. But something's not complete. What is it, Jesus? And notice where Jesus goes. Jesus said to him, If you wish to be, what's the word? Complete. The word can also mean perfect. It is the Greek word teleos. It is the idea of maturity. It is the idea of being full grown. It is the idea of not lacking anything. There are no cracks in the vase. It is perfect. If you wish to be perfect, if this is somewhere you're willing to go, here's what it takes to get there. And notice what he says. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. Notice that Jesus relates treasure in heaven to entering into life to the idea of what must this man do to obtain or to have or to inherit eternal life. They're all connected together. So he's telling him what must happen. And then notice the last part. And come, follow me. Does this sound like what Jesus taught the disciples in the Matthew 13 passage? kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field somebody comes across it they, they, they bury it again they go and they sell all that they have in order to buy that field so that they will possess the treasure of great value for themselves they have ownership in it they have obtained it for themselves this is no different this is exactly what's going on here now put yourself in this man's sandals for a second. Imagine, Jesus has invited you to be part of his entourage. Would you go? Don't be so hasty. Would you go? 
I mean, I sit here and I look at this guy and I want to get all high and mighty and super spiritual and go, well, what else I got going on in life? Following Jesus is the greatest thing, right? But he wasn't staying at the Best Western, was he? Nope. He wasn't eating fish over at Susie's on Friday nights, was he? Nope. It was hard. It was difficult. And I'm kind of convinced that if you hung around with the disciples for long enough, that might be a factor that actually convinced you not to follow him. I don't know. Those guys seem like a mess. But does everybody see kind of the weight of what he's looking at here? Again, think about what defines your worth. And imagine that Jesus is approaching you and saying, if you want to be mature, full-grown, perfect, complete, sell it all. Load it up in a U-Haul, take it to the pawn shop, get rid of it, and everything you get in return for it, find the poor and give them the money. Well, they're going to use it on drugs. Does Jesus ever care about that? Notice, that's not the situation, is it? It's often the disqualifying of what we should do in situations like this that keep us from what God's really called us to do. Now, does this mean that everyone needs to go home now and put their homes up for sale? That's the question. Only if God's called you to do that. If God has said to you, get up, leave where you're at, go to another place, be there, serve me, worship me, point everyone to me, be my disciple in another place, then the worst thing you can do is stay. The worst thing that you can do is hold on to your stuff. Because everything we have in this life burns. All of it. 2 Peter 3, it will all burn up. And it's interesting because even Peter asked the question, if we know that everything that we own is going to burn up, what sort of people should we be who represent Jesus Christ on this earth? If we know you can't hold on to it, what should we do? Anybody heard of anybody ever being buried with something weird? Yeah. They cracked open some of those uh, pyramids in Egypt, and they highly reverenced cats. I can't think of anything that is more on the edge of hell than being buried with a cat. I love all y'all, but I hate cats. They're such snooty animals, man. They make me sick. I'm like, can't stand them. But sometimes people get buried with weird things. Sometimes we invest our whole lives in trying to maintain relics of the past that keep us from looking forward to the future. These things are not prized possessions. They're not investments. A lot of times they're anchors. They keep us from moving anywhere that the Lord would have us to go. I know some people that have actually sat down and been able to come to terms with the fact and admit to me, and not here yet, but have admitted to me in certain conversations, the Lord called me to do this and I did not do it. And then they sit around and wonder why their life is a wreck and all they're obsessed about is how they can attain a better position and more money 
and more affluence. None of it for the Lord. None of it with Him at the center. None of it because the Gospel is what saves people and brings them from death into life. Nothing about the fact that our sins have been completely paid for on a cross. It's just about them. The greatest obstacle to a rich entrance into the kingdom is us. And Jesus is trying to show this man Your stuff's not worth it. In fact, I love in the Mark passage when it accounts for this. Before he replies and tells him to go sell his possessions, Mark actually writes this. And Jesus loved him and said. Notice Jesus isn't coming in, kind of get rid of this, this, this. It's not, this isn't a legalistic thing. This is if you want to know what it is to have greatness in the life to come then it will certainly cost you in this present life. And it can cost some people more than others. And it could cost you everything. It costs Paul everything. Anybody looking forward to a life on house arrest? That's where Paul was. Once he got free, he went and preached the gospel. Some believe he went over into Spain and was actually to get the gospel into there. When he came back to Rome, they arrested him. Not shortly after, they beheaded him. Was Paul a failure? No. But he had nothing that we constantly consider valuable to attribute to his success. In fact, his mantra was to live is Christ and to die is what? All of it. All of it. Nothing was going to hinder Paul from giving everything he had for the sake of the Lord. We're not talking about this is what needs to happen to go to heaven when you die. Jesus does all that work. That is by faith alone. This right here is coming to a heart confrontation with the fact that Jesus wants to lead us in infinitely greater realms. Realms that Satan's orchestration of this world system often keep us out of. And it often comes with, yeah, you're going to have less here. But there will be so much more there. You don't know that it's worth it now. But when you see it, you will never regret it. Or let me ask you this way. Would Jesus call you to do anything that would be for the worse? Never. Never. See, that's the amazing thing. Not only has He died for us, rescued us freely by His grace, adopted us in as children, set us in a place in the heavenlies, made us above reproach in the sight of God, given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms to where you and I are lacking nothing in order to be successful in everything that He has called us to do. And it's all because He graciously gave it to us, not because we merited it whatsoever. And now He is saying, now use this in ways that the world will not understand, but will constantly bring a smile to the Father's face. That is worth living for. That is worth everything we have. Everything we deem precious. Now how do I know this is not talking about that he's trying to convince this guy that the heights of heaven are like a uh, pole vaulting event and they're just way too high for you to get. Jesus has got to get you over the top. How do we know that? Well, he gives him a works answer. 
And doesn't Jesus call him to sacrifice? Understand this. Going to heaven when you die is never about what you sacrifice. It's all about what Jesus sacrificed. Past tense. I'm either accepted by His blood or I'm not accepted at all. So the fact that Jesus is now crossing this and saying, I'm asking something of you. This is what you want. You want to live a life that is full on for me all the time. You want to live a life that is going to merit greatness in the coming kingdom when He rules from the throne. This is what it takes. This is what it costs. This is what you must give. You're already fully accepted in the Father, but He's given you so much that you can now utilize to bring Him maximum glory. That's where Jesus is leading Him. It's interesting because He doesn't just say, come follow Me. Come live in tents with Me. Come wonder where you're going to lay your head the next day with Me. He says, you will have treasure in heaven. Anybody ever shared the gospel with somebody and instead of letting them know that they would go to heaven and die, you told them it was all about them having treasure in heaven? No, because that's not the message that you share with a lost person. That's a message for a saved person. Notice where Jesus is going with this. Now, what is the response? Verse 22, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. The word means he was distressed or he was sorrowful. And notice, Matthew doesn't leave it to question why this is the case. Look what he says. For he was one who owned much property. He had a lot of real estate. He owned a lot of businesses. He had Jay Leno's car collection. He had a bunch. He had stuff. And as he thought through the stuff that he owned, and he looked at the idea of going through and selling it all and giving it to the poor and abandoning what he had set there in order to walk next to the Savior, he actually came to the conclusion it wasn't worth it. This man is soil number three. He asked about the word of the kingdom. And Jesus told him, you want to enter life richly? You want to inherit eternal life? You want to have treasure in heaven? Here's what it costs. Here's what you must part with. No, I think the riches of the world are going to choke that message out so it's not effectual. And there will be no fruit. Now here's the question in everybody's mind. Does that mean if I'm well off financially, I have to give up everything in order to attain this? And I would tell you only if that's what Jesus is calling you to. There is a lot that the Scriptures warn us about loving money and about what it's able to do. In fact, doesn't Jesus even tell us you can't serve God in money? He tells you that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about how to attain greatness in the kingdom. Money is such a power. Money and sex are the most powerful forces that Satan has ever distorted in this world system. And he will do whatever he can to deter believers in Christ from having the maximum return on their investment in this life for living a life for him. There are some people that are able to structure their money well and it doesn't rule their life. Amen. Praise God. You have overcome a massive snare and for that 
I am extremely uh, grateful and excited for you because it hasn't taken you captive. In fact, uh, one verse here, uh, let me see here, forgive me. I didn't have Mitch put it up on there, but I probably should have because now I look like a schmuck who doesn't know where he's going. Um, but it, here it is. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. I've got it in my notes. Just listen to it. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And a snare keeps you from going where you need to go. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. Pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice it doesn't say if you love money you're not saved. It's saying that a redeemed, saved child of God can get so distracted that their life actually ends up in ruin. That they can actually destroy themselves. I mean, let's think about it. If you can just buy your way out of a problem, why pray? You ever notice that? Anybody ever seen the, the series Gotham? About Bruce Wayne's beginnings and all that kind of stuff? Okay, so one person, yay. So this illustration is going to go over great. But any time in that series when Bruce Wayne comes up with a problem, I mean, he's a billionaire. How much is it? Oh, two million? Here you go. <laughs> Bruce Wayne needs to pray. Because if that's your security, if that's your hope, if that's the, oh, here's how I'm going to make it. You don't need the cross. You don't need God. You don't need supernatural dealings in your life. You've already got someone. Who's going to take care of the problem? You see how that works? That's why Jesus made that comparison. You can't serve both. There are heads with one another. It's impossible. So maybe there needs to be a person where the dollar signs hold precedence in our lives. There's no hope in them. Notice he says here, verse 23, the man walks away and I love it because Jesus says, you know what? Let's use this as a teaching moment. And Jesus said to his disciples, there's his audience, saved or unsaved. Saved people. Watch how he handles this situation in their hearing. We don't get any inkling that Jesus ever thought that the rich young ruler was unsaved. Watch how he uses this. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the idea of the kingdom of heaven hasn't changed. Still, the idea of the millennial reign of Christ when he rules from the throne of David hasn't changed anything. But the idea of entering life is the idea of having a rich entrance into life. It's not that he needed to be saved. He already had eternal life from a justification perspective. The idea was having a life that was worth something when he got there. It was laying up treasures in heaven, not resorting to storing all kinds of things here where rust and moth destroy it and where thieves steal. It's about laying it up in heaven. And why is it so difficult? Well, notice how he relates it. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is a figure of speech. I can't even say the word for it because it's so difficult and I don't care to get tongue-tied because you guys just laugh at me when I do. But 
This is a saying to exclaim exceeding difficulty. Some people believe, well, in the wall of Jerusalem, there's this place called the Eye of the Needle. You had to unload a camel for cargo. He had to get down on his knees and kind of hobble through, and then he'd get back up on the other side and that kind of thing. There's very little evidence for what that may mean. Could be true. Maybe not. Everybody's arguing about it. What is the idea? It's difficult. When money is your hope, Jesus is not. And that's the problem. What is the sole priority in leading your life forward? Because if money is in the driver's seat, it's definitely going to direct you one way. But if Christ is in the driver's seat, it will direct you in a drastically different way and one that you may not understand or be ready to accept. In 2005, some men approached me as I was doing my stellar youth pastor position. Some of you have heard about the Grand Heights. If you need any pointers, let me know. Right? I was a horrible youth pastor. They approached me. Maybe they saw it wasn't working out. And they said, have you ever thought about planting a church on the west side, close to the college, and reaching college kids? And I said, no. And they said, would you like to? And I said, let me pray about it. No. Because I was living in a parsonage. I had a yearly salary. Somebody was cutting my grass. I was getting mileage returns. Somebody's taking my garbage out to the edge of the road for me. No. I'd have to give up all this in order to do that? No. Have a good day. Thanks for the meal, right? And then the next year of my life was awful. The Lord pressed me and pressed me and pressed me. Until finally I said, okay, God, we'll do it. We'll give up everything that is comfortable and cushy and great. Even though the numbers are down, I'm pretty okay with it. And we'll walk out and we'll go get a mortgage and we'll start paying our electric bill and our water bill and I'll start taking my own garbage out on my own lawn. And blah, blah, blah. Everybody see how carnal somebody can be? They're going to plant this church. That's what we'll do. It's not me, it's the Lord. I had the church planting strategist for the state of Indiana tell me I've never seen anyone hit the target group that they were going after as much as you have. Now that wasn't me. It was just the fact that we planted a church to do something to try to reach college kids, and the Lord blessed it. But none of that blessing would have been unfolded to understand if all I was worried about was whether or not I was going to have to take the garbage to the curb. For some reason, that was deemed more valuable than what God had called me to. So notice, it is harder. Sorry, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's what's interesting about this. Everybody see at the end of verse 23, it says, enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody see that? Notice at the end of 24, it says, enter the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus equates them as one and the same. There's no difference. The kingdom of God is entering the kingdom of heaven, which is the same as having treasure in heaven, which is the same as entering into life, which is the same as obtaining or having or inheriting eternal life. All of this threaded perfectly together by Jesus' own words here. But look what he says after that. I love it. 
When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Ha ha, see, it is about going to heaven when you die. Is that what saved means here? Notice that Jesus is trying to save this man from a worthless life. From a life that is caught up in all the wrong stuff. That may mean a lot in the social scheme of things. That may achieve a lot politically. That may give them wonderful vacations in the Caribbean. But it's going to amount for nothing in the eyes of God. And here's the reason why this is so astonishing for them. If you have wealth, is that not a sign that God has blessed you? That was the Jewish mindset. They must got something going on, right? They own three houses. They've got to have something going on. God has obviously blessed them richly. Is that the case? Do you have to have money in order to be considered blessed by God and everybody else is just trying to figure out what God wants? No. That is a social structure that people have tried to fit in. And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. This type of sacrifice for this type of end is impossible in and of ourselves. No one in their logical, earthly mind would ever make such a decision as this. It's not carnal enough. It's got to please me and build me up. And the one who dies with the most toys wins. Anybody heard that one? Anybody ever notice that the person who dies with the most toys still dies? You don't get to play with those toys afterwards. Can't take it with you. You can't. So notice, it doesn't necessarily matter what you're accumulating in this life. It matters what you're giving in this life. That's what Jesus is trying to teach. It's not possible with man. It's not possible with you and me. But all things are possible with who? There's a difference. Who's in the driver's seat? Who's making the decision? There's a big difference between saying, well, God, I really want this, but I want it like this and with this color and with this attitude. And Obedience is not a checklist. It's a yes or a no. It's, what does God call me to do? Okay, I'm going to sit down because I'm not willing to do that. Or, I don't understand that at all. But if that's what He's called me to do, I have no choice but to trust Him and watch Him do it. It's the putting up the hand and stepping back and sitting down that keeps God from doing God things amongst God's people. We are talking about stepping out on faith. Stepping out on faith is not blindfold. I wonder where the sidewalk is. That's not what it is. It is. This is what God has said. And it may not make sense to you because of the way that you logically think about everything in this world and you're not even for sure if there is a God. You're only thinking according to the natural. No, I have God's Word that is more certain than anything that anybody else has ever told me. And this is the way we need to go. We're doing it. Period. End of story. And we're going to watch God work. That's the difference. Now, of all the people to pipe up at this moment in the story, who do you think has got something to say? Peter, we know. We love this guy. He's always, uh, I mean, he's a thinker, right? I can almost see it. You can see him sitting there listening to Jesus, and he's kind of got this, uh, and then all of a sudden he goes, right? 
the light bulb just went off. Now that had to be interesting in the first century, but watch this. Verse 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, which real quick, when you see behold in the scriptures, just think of whenever Lucy shakes Charlie Brown and he's got three eyeballs. Think of that. <laughs> Trying to get your attention. Behold. Listen up. Right? Behold. We have left everything and followed you. Now notice, Peter's watching this situation happen. He might know that guy because they work out at the same club together or something like that, right? And he knows what he possesses. And that guy's not willing to give it up. And Peter starts doing the math. Okay, wait a second. I used to fish, and we left that. We know that Peter had a home somewhere because they go through and Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law, right? So we know he had that going on and so he's doing the math there and he goes, all of us guys have left our stuff and we're out here with you in the middle of nowhere. I love what he says. Look, what then will there be for us? And Jesus says, Peter, you selfish schmuck. Just be glad I love you, you undeserving piece of trash. Sit down. Keep your mouth shut. You talk too much. Does he say that? No, man. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter at all. Why? Because the question, if Peter has been listening during Jesus' ministry, is a perfectly valid one. This is the question that Jesus wants. Because watch how he answers it. Look what he says. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, pause, English translation, I'm telling y'all the truth. And this is from God's mouth. Watch what he says. That you who have followed me in the regeneration, we're going to deal with that in a second, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do me a favor, in your notes, turn all the way to the end and then turn back two pages. At the bottom, you will notice that there is a paragraph at the bottom. At the top, it says Matthew 19, 27 through 30. At the bottom, it's going to say that paragraph, the, this word, regeneration. Is everybody going to see that? Okay, so turn there with me because I want you to see that I'm not making this up. I'm not even going to begin to try to pronounce this Greek word, so Mary Cooper, if you could yell it out, I'd appreciate it. This word, regeneration, is, praise the Lord, in Greek, meaning a state of being renewed with focus on a cosmic experience, renewal. It has been translated in English as renewal, new world, and even the messianic age. Thayer understands it as, That signal and glorious change of all things in heaven and earth for the better. That restoration of the primal and perfect condition of things which existed before the fall of our first parents. Schofield writes, if you have a Schofield study Bible, here it is. Schofield writes, it is as the recreation of the social order, the renewal of the earth, notice what it says, when the kingdom shall come. Now here's why this is important. Because by signaling this in the passage, Jesus has just given us a time indicator of when the payoff 
for serving him now takes place. Look what he says again in verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, there's your timing language, when the Son of Man returns and sets up his throne and establishes his kingdom, at that time, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Guys, because you followed me now, you are guaranteed positions of ruling and reigning in the kingdom to come. It's cost you a lot now. The fishing business isn't earning anything for Peter and John. But they're with Jesus. It's costing you now. You probably never thought your life was going to go in this direction. But because you have followed me, you will receive this reward. Notice what it says after that. Verse 29. If you want, circle it because it's got really great application. And everyone. Who? Everyone. Who has left houses. Or brothers. Or sisters. Or father. Or mother. Or children. Or farms. And notice the proper motivation. For my name's sake doing it for jesus jesus is the reason that makes the difference in my life for why i'm going in this direction it's all because of him notice that making that type of difference here will receive everybody see this many times as much everybody see that it's a bad translation it actually means a hundred fold that's what it means now think with me parable of the soils Soil number four, the one who receives the word of the kingdom and understands it will bear fruit and some a hundredfold. Everybody remember that from your chart that we saw? It's the exact same thing. If you've left something for the sake of doing what Jesus has called you to do, you will have a hundredfold and watch how Jesus ties this up with a sweet little bow. And will what? Inherit what? Eternal life, notice, not go to heaven when you die, but have a rich abundance in heaven when you get there. If you've left it all for Him, you will receive so much more. Everybody understand why this is difficult teaching? It calls for life assessment. Where am I? Now, she's not in here, so I'm going to say something short about this. My wife's back in the nursery right now, which probably gains enough reward in heaven as it is. But, she's always been someone who never wanted to live far from her parents. Never. In fact, when we moved just 30 miles away so I could be the youth pastor that failed at that church. That's 30 miles. And she was kind of like, mm, I don't know, 30 miles. Yeah. Anybody notice where we're at now? Shows you two things. Number one, the Lord changes the heart. And number two, I don't doubt that there's going to be a reward because she came to terms with this and said, you know what? the Lord's going to lead us there, we're going to go. That's the type of stuff I'm talking about. The things that we would prefer to have because of their carnal comforts that we love so much are forsaken because what Jesus offers is infinitely greater. Maybe it doesn't have the immediate payoff, but it's guaranteed without lies, distorting it, blemishes, diminishing it, perfectly laid up in heaven for us. Notice how he ends this 
but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, this just isn't talking about in the dinner aisle when we have a meal together, okay? Many who are first on earth, who are seeking that position, who are carnal in the way that they live their lives, who are believers in Christ but don't care about submitting themselves to Him as far as where they're to go and what they're to do and how they're to spend their money and what they're supposed to do in raising their children. They don't care anything about those types of things. They're just kind of living life and Sunday is just kind of on the shelf and I'll just wipe the dust off my Bible so we can use it every Sunday kind of things. Mediocrity. There's so many other things in this life I would rather attain for. I would rather go for that. I got to get my kids to that softball game. Sorry, they're not going to be at church. Ooh, that hurt somebody, didn't it? Because softball was way more important than the Lord Jesus Christ and the family worshiping together. And we wonder why we have difficulties in the church. Now, if you can't say amen, you need to say ouch. Because there's a lot of basic, simple, everyday things that we make choices that we don't realize how we're sliding what Jesus would like to do in our lives. We've been called to more than that, guys. So if we're looking for firstness in this life, you can guarantee that in the kingdom, there's going to be some lastness that we're going to have to deal with. Still in, still going to heaven, still fully accepted by the Father. But we're going to have to sit here, and I guarantee you, when we're standing in the back as last in the kingdom, we're going to wish we would have given all to be first. But notice the flip side of that. The last, here and now, will be where? First. That's what Jesus offers. So understanding this is a teaching about greatness in the kingdom, not about how you go to heaven when you die, it's important that you make that delineation. What soil are you? Do you understand it? Do you receive it? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt what God's called you to do and say, yeah, you know what? That is the way I need to go. Or, shut up, preacher. I don't want to hear anymore. Because that's going to cost me something. Here's what's interesting about that is I have very little skin in that game. My job is to tell you what the Word says. Your job is to receive. Pray. Father, we thank You for the immense value that you have placed before us that is possible because of your great grace. Lord, you call each one of us to different things, to be living our lives for you. Some of it will cost us a little, some of it will cost us a lot. But at all costs, when we come across the message of the kingdom, what you're calling us to do to follow you, We need to sell everything we have and be willing to do it. It's hard. It's difficult. It can trap us, the things of this world. But I pray for a moment that all those things would sit by the wayside and we would be able to have a glimpse to see you for who you truly are. That we would understand the infinite worth of what it is to serve an amazing, living, risen Savior triumphant over the grave, conquering sin on the cross, stretching out a hand and inviting us to be part of your intimate entourage, inviting us to have great treasure in heaven, inviting us to a deeper intimacy with you. So however that plays on our hearts, 
Father, I pray that you minister it to us now. By your Spirit, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.